welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Ben Cormack. Ben is a musculoskeletal therapist out of the UK. Ben is one half of the Better Clinician Project alongside Adam Meekins. Ben also has an education company called Core Kinetic, which provides clinical education to musculoskeletal therapists all around the world. Ben often plays the chief provocateur on the internet, challenging ideas on all fronts and without regard to status. I believe criticism is healthy and necessary in order to fundamentally progress knowledge. Therefore, I love what Ben does. I got Ben on the podcast to chat about the biopsychosocial or BPS model. The BPS model is off-quoted and referenced in research, but what it actually is, is obscure. Is it a model? Is it a framework? Is it a heuristic? Is it a philosophy or something else? What does it mean? What does it stand for? And how do we use it? Ben clarifies what it is, what it isn't, how to use it, and we also have some fun along the way. Before we get into the nitty gritty of this conversation, I've actually just returned from Sydney where I ran my first shoulder workshop in a couple of years. I had a great time talking all things shoulders and judging from the feedback, so did the course attendees. My next workshop is coming up in just a couple of weeks in Melbourne on the 4th of June and there are still a couple of tickets remaining for this event. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Ben Cormack. All right, here we are with Ben Cormack, the, the infamous or famous Ben Cormack. Not, not sure which one you are these days, mate. Everybody, everybody knows who you are these days. You're, you're vocal and I love it. You've got your opinions and you're not afraid to say them. So thanks very much for getting up early over there in the UK to have a chat with me. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me. And uh, it's great to be included amongst some of the you know, fantastic guests and yourself that, that you've had on previously. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's, um, it's always good to be able to do through the wonders of the internet, talk to people all around the world. So for, for the three people who, who don't know who you are, Ben, just give them a brief uh, synopsis of who you are as a person, what you do professionally and what you like to do recreationally. Yeah, yeah. So um, my background originally is what's called sports therapy in the UK. Um, I am I do a number of different things, actually. What I, I, I do like to keep it interesting. So I do bits of clinical work still, maybe 10, 15 hours a week uh, on a busy week. I run something called the Better Clinician Project with another very uh, shy and retiring gentleman, Adam Meekins. Um, and then also I have my own uh, kind of educational company called Core Kinetic, which is really just, you know, reaching out and, and you know, trying to get some of the some of the things that interest me out there into the public and see if that interests them as well. So 
So I like to keep it pretty varied professionally, uh, something I've always enjoyed doing. Uh, what do I do recreationally? Now, that's that, that's a great question. That's the real insight into the man, isn't it? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty active person. I enjoy, you know, going to the gym, doing my boxing. Uh, that's one of the big things that, that I enjoy, both little bits of coaching and, uh, and doing that. And then just, you know, spending time with my family and trying not to think about kind of MSK physio type of things as much as possible. But that never happens. <laughs> yeah, it's a passion, isn't it? On, on boxing, quickly, AJ yeah. and, and Fury, is it ever going to go ahead? Well, it, it, this is the classic, isn't it? You know, it's the classic money and, and TV networks and, you know, this guy and this guy and in terms of, you know, the promoters and all those kind of things. So I think it's probably too big not to happen. Because who doesn't want that money, right? You know, there's there's a lot of money there. When it happens and how it happens, you know, we don't look at Tyson and Lewis is a great example. They didn't meet until I think it was maybe the early 2000, 2002. I can't remember. But it was certainly when they both weren't in their prime. Exactly. So it will happen. When does it happen? That's the question. It was the same with uh, Mayweather and Pacquiao. Talked about for Great 15 time. years, right? And Pacquiao wasn't Pacquiao, and it was a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. So Ben, let's let's get on to the actual stuff, mate. Let's let's get on to. <laughs> oh, that the, wasn't the, it. That's well, we could have an hour. <laughs> I, I do want to pick your brains about boxing, but we'll leave that for off air. I'm sure it's boring yeah, for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to talk to you about yeah. the biopsychosocial model as proposed by George Engel. You're you're kind of renowned for having an interest in this area, and I'm I'm interested as into how this became a, an area of interest for you. In because there's, a, there's lots of things to be interested in in musculoskeletal physiotherapy or musculoskeletal medicine. Why did the biopsychosocial model um, stand out to you as something mm. to investigate and to analyze? Now that's a great question. That's a great question. I really like that. Well, firstly, you know, I, I think it's certainly something that's not just me. It's certainly built in prominence over the last five mm. or ten years. You know, there's lots of papers that come out that say biopsychosocial this and biopsychosocial that. I think the thing that really interested me is what it actually says. You know, what what actually the main cut and thrust of, of what George Engel was trying to say, and that's this idea of humanism within helping people, this idea of the person as a person. And actually, I think there's a bit of a selfish reason behind my interest. And that's because that side of it has probably always resonated with me more than some of the more technical, anatomical, these type of things. So I'm probably much better at dealing with people than I am at finding bony landmarks, right? So, so from that sense, it's something that says to me, ah, this kind of fits with who I am, how I like to practice, what I think is important, what fits my style, if that makes sense. So there's a sure. bit of a bias in there. But, you know, I, I think that I believe in personality and character and connection and relationship. You know, that's the way that I like to live my life, my values, my friends, my family. And I think that those things really, really resonate with me as a person. Mm. So, you know, as I said before, I'm much better at that than, than many other things. And I probably hold that as a higher importance than many other things that I've learned before, like what you do with these or, you know, how much neurotransmitters are floating around in your brain or, or, or these type of things. So it's probably... Uh, you know, in some ways, a little, a little selfish in that that it just resonates with me rather than like a higher scientific reasoning type of thing. That's cool. That's 
that's how interests emerge, don't they? Yeah. So you sort of yeah. found something within it that that you agreed with. There wasn't some epiphany, some moment when you were treating someone with a tight QL in their lower back and you go, there's got to be something more to this. <laughs> well, I'm sure I've had, I don't know if I'd call them epiphanies. It's more like, I really haven't got a clue what's going on here. There's got to yeah. be something else going on. But there was this moment as the sun set in Ibiza and I was looking, <laughs> no, that's a lie, but it sounded good, right? So there was never an epiphany. You know, it's like all these things, I think that they grow on you. You know, mm. it's a bit like mould. They probably mm. grow a little slowly along the way and, and you raise your interest. And, and the other thing was that I kind of kept seeing this word and it meant something different to the other people that were writing it. So I'd read a paper that was like the biopsychosocial approach to exercise or this or that or the other. And I actually thought this doesn't sound like what this other guy was talking about when it comes to the biopsychosocial model. You know, I don't really feel like these things are one and the same. And that probably leads to me being a bit vocal or, as we say in the UK, a bit mouthy um, about kind of, you know, my thoughts in this area. Because it was like, hang on a minute. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound right. That's missing the point. And, you know, I don't want to be that dick who points out the point, but I do like to point out the point. <laughs> it needs to be done. It needs to be done. And you, you're, you're always there to do it, Ben. It's good. <laughs> so, Thanks, so bud. You keep, you keep me honest. I always think about you, actually, when I'm, like, writing stuff, and I'm like, what will Ben say to this? So it's good. Keep it going. Ben, Ben, can you tell me what the biopsychosocial model is? Can we define wow. it? And, mate... <laughs> What is it? Is it a philosophy? Is it a theory? Is it an ideology? Is it an algorithm? Is it a framework? Is it a heuristic? What well, is it? It's all of those things, actually. And I've got a little quote from Engel because he 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 said this, and I think it's important. And, and I, as I was saying to J Jared off air, uh, I've got a paper coming out with Peter Stilwell and Joe Gibson looking at this exact question. What did Engel say? Um, and that's kind of, you know, the premise of the paper that, that we write or have written, and now it's going through the process. So this is what Engel said. He said, a biopsychosocial model is proposed that provides a blueprint for research, a framework for teaching, and a design for action in the real world of healthcare. So it's kind of all of the above, right? So when people say it's, it, it, it's you know, models... It's not a model, it's a framework. Well, actually, Engel uses model and framework in the same sentence. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? So I don't actually, I don't feel Engel was there to say, this is how you do it. This is what it's all about. So I think it's much more a philosophy or a theory. Now, uh, people who've worked, you know, uh, on this since then, there's a, there's a great paper by uh, Beryl Corio from 2004, and that, that's exactly what they call it. They call it a philosophy of care, right? So, so again, it's not, uh, it's not uh, I don't like the, the word blueprint because blueprint to me sounds like it's, you know, a design, it's set yeah. out. But certainly I like the idea of philosophy because it's, for me, it's about how do I approach the process of working with a person? So what's in my mind before I sit down, like today at about 10 o'clock, I've got a patient. And before I switch on my computer, fire up Zoom, get into it, you know, I'm going to be thinking, what, what do I want them to feel? What do I want them to think? How do I want them to go away and say, you know, what was that like for me? So in terms of that, that is our philosophy. And a philosophy is just thinking, isn't it, really? You know, we can get very, very technical with philosophy and talk about, you know, old German guys and some old Greek dude and all these other things. But at its very essence, philosophy is just thinking. 
right? So our personal philosophy, and I'm big on defining personal philosophy because I think it guides us, doesn't it? It's our own kind of guide in the dark, if you like. And so for me, it, it's it, it, I like that philosophy of care because it's saying, what do I want from this encounter for the other person? Not what do I want for me? What do I want for the other person involved in this? Mm. So philosophy, you know, a, a philosophy sits quite nicely with me. Now, someone else might say it's a framework or a heuristic or a model. But I think Engel was really quite loose with this. You know, mm. as that sentence showed, it was kind of a bit of everything. He yeah. wanted you to have that thought in, in his mind when you worked with a patient. If you're looking to research something, he wants that thought in your mind to say, you know, how does this fit into that? Uh, and, and, and so, I, you know, philosophy fits quite nicely for me. Now, the problem with that is that then it throws up all these interpretations, doesn't it? Mm. And then people critique the interpretations and it all gets into a game of Chinese whispers. And I think it, that's what's happened with the biopsychosocial model a little bit is we've twisted it and turned it a little bit to suit what we're trying to do. And I act, this is going to be controversial. I actually think the biopsychosocial model, it might even evade scientific exploration sometimes in its, in its essence. Does that make sense? It does. And it's very controversial, Ben. Yeah. But, what, but you know, his <laughs> ideas were, he, 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 he thought, he, he didn't like the ideas of dualism, right? So the mind and the body. And if you think about what the, what's happened to the biopsychosocial model is it's been, as, as Peter Stilwell would say, it's been trichotomized. So instantly it's been reduced into these bits. And then we reduce it into an outcome measure or we reduce it into a very discreet research question. Mm. And sometimes I think that, that, that it, it evades our current scientific methods to be able, mm. in, in its very essence. And so sometimes I think these two things are butting up against each other, that mm. actually that we're trying to research this by using an entirely different philosophy. That's interesting. Okay, so so let me get my hair So we're kind of yeah we're getting into like into ontology and epistemology here, right? Because so so perhaps using a biopsychosocial model is is our view of reality, as it were, in in healthcare, and that's 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 an ontology. So we just got to accept that, yeah. And then within that, we can study things around it without governing or or sort of being the overarching framework for how we acquire knowledge and that's that's epistemology anyway i don't think we're going to get anywhere down that line of inquiry no it's kind of, no, it's no, kind i don't of, want to no that's it's very good neither do i <laughs> good mate good let's 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 shelve that we'll leave that for the philosophers um but but it's fascinating that you think that perhaps the biopsychosocial model might evade science and and what i assume you mean by that is by you know quantitative science and yeah yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. evade science but does it does it fit into our scientific philosophy and our scientific process in its very essence? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and and kind of topical at the moment because I, I'm hearing some rumblings and I'm reading some rumblings and I'm feeling some rumblings deep within my core, Ben, about physiotherapy. Is a is it is physiotherapy too complex as a as a profession? I don't want to say an intervention, but you know, how do we measure our effectiveness well not effectiveness efficacy but can we ever compare physiotherapy perhaps or even exercise let's say exercise 
to a placebo. Does does that evade science? And I know we've oh. kind of had some some conversations about this on Twitter, and a lot of people have got opinions. But can you distill? Can you reduce something so complex? as exercise because it works by it's multi-dimensional it works by yeah, so yeah, many yeah. different mechanisms how can we then get a placebo of that because that's that's quantitative science that you need a placebo controlled trial yeah so any thoughts on that i know it's well if, yeah if we think about kind of like a placebo pill right you have an active ingredient don't you and you know what that active ingredient is because you put it in the pill so you are testing this active ingredient. You know exactly what it is, right? It's however many milligrams of whatever funky stuff they do. And you're going to compare that against an inert thing. That's really what a placebo is, isn't it? It's an inert, it's an inert object. It doesn't exert an influence in traditional chemical sense, right? Problem with exercise is we haven't got a clue how it works. So what is the active ingredient? What is not the active ingredient? So I don't think we have enough knowledge about the intervention sometimes to actually be able. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think that has to be, again, does it come back to philosophy first in that, you know, how do we go about that process of designing that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it, it, if you take an ultrasound machine now, if you look at ultrasound research, they kind of detune it, don't they? They 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 tune it differently to create a, um, a dosage that's different, and they have they have exactly the same process that occurs. Some dude goes like that and then rubs, you know, this ultrasound thing on you. Now one is working with a precise dosage, and one is working with an imprecise dosage of of whatever ingredient goes into that. And we don't have either a precise or an imprecise dosage. We don't know what the active ingredient is. And I think that that makes it quite tough to be able to do. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, we need to know more about how exercise works to be able to ask the next stage of the question. So there's something behind the thing. Does that make sense? Now, we mm-hmm. can say that, so we could play with different dosages. We could play with different exercises in different areas. Can an exercise ever be? Uh, a placebo is it always got an active ingredient heart rate blood flow basic biochemical processes that are uh, that are occurring within the body when i move it um so i don't know whether it ever could be described as inert or inactive Mm. i agree i i really don't think it's possible given our current understanding of the universe to to design that and i think that's interesting because therefore if we just look at the hierarchy of evidence as almost deifying the randomized controlled trial. Yeah, yeah. We have to kind of rethink that. And that that's interesting. Anyway, when you started talking about evading science, that's what came to mind. And we're going to go down a rabbit hole. But I think I think we might again just shelve that because I do want to just focus on the biopsychosocial model, mate. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so stop, stop leading me down the garden path. So you're the one doing the leading, buddy. Agree. Agree. <laughs> The blind leading the blind, perhaps. So so let me talk. So let's go back to 1977. I was born in 78. So 77 was just before me, but that's fine. Just just before your time. But just before before you came into the world, Ben, luckily you came into an earth that the biopsychosocial model had been invented. Otherwise, it would have been barbaric. It would have been been the dark dark ages. So what, what, why did George Engel suggest the biopsychosocial model? What, 
what was it in response to? So the biomedical yeah. model was obviously the champion at the time and arguably still is today. Why wasn't that sufficient? Obviously, that had led to great advances in medicine and, and health and well-being. Why replace it? Yeah, so, I mean, let's let's not, you know, Engel, he wrote this down, but he certainly wasn't the first person to think about these things. You know, you go back to William Osler in the mid-19th century, you know, so he was saying... Listen to your patient. They're telling you the diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. You know, one of those, I love those pictures where you have William Osler in black and white looking out, saying profound things. So sage. Um, but yeah, you, you had Osler, you had Soma Weiss, you had Peabody. You know, these are there's a really nice timeline there going from the mid-19th century up through the 20th century to the late 20th century. So Engel was only building on what had happened before. These aren't new thoughts. And I think we could go back to, to whenever and wherever and someone saying, actually, there's a person involved in all of this, right? Mm. And so uh, there's a video that's floating around of Engel talking um, in the 80s, maybe late 80s. And, you know, he's an old, old guy by then. And what he focused on when he was talking about, and this is really important, what he focused on when he was talking about it was this idea of humanism. This idea of it being a person, working with a person. Um, and, you know, again, our traditional models of science have focused on that reduction, hasn't it? You know, if we talk about pain science, we tend to go into um, ion channels and, you know, magnesium plugs and, you know, pushing things across cell membranes, and which is all fantastic stuff. But it's definitely falling down the hierarchy, right? We're definitely going downwards. If we look at Engels, the, the second paper, the, uh, the, the, the implementation paper, I think that was 78 or 79, he has this hierarchy and we can go up, we can look at two-person medicine, we can look at family, we can look at society, we can look at the goddamn universe, or we can go downwards and we reduce things down into these smaller, smaller, smaller parts. Now, science often goes one way when we are talking about many things you know so we do have big epidemiological stuff that does look at things from a, a higher level or, or a greater level rather than a higher level you know a criticism of a hierarchy is it's hierarchical mm. um so a flat ontology might be another way to look at it but you know really for me there are some overarching principles so firstly you start off with this idea of humanism so Engel suggested that um the biomedical model dehumanized medical practice that was his terminology dehumanized medical practice we have this idea of dualism so Engel was a psychiatrist and this idea that we're separating mind and body and you could say that modern approaches with the three balls you know the three uh, domains whatever you want to call them that is in its own way a reductionist way of viewing it and then also this kind of idea of of, of reductionism so humanism reductionism and then also uh, dualism as well um, and, and I think those are the three things. And, and actually, Engel seemed to me always to be a little bit like not everything gum, comes back to quantification. You know, that, that he's talking about in his sense, the tests that we do, you know, blood gases and, you know, whatever else people send off for, um, which are useful pieces of information. And they tell us about the disease, the problem that, 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 that the person has. But there's this other uh, idea and people like Leventhal with the common sense model have built on this is that we have the disease, which is maybe something you can objectify, and then you can have the illness, which are the mm. things that exist around the disease. Mm. Um, and I think actually 
you know, our modern perception of that might sometimes be that we've turned pain into the disease mm. so that, you know, we're objectifying it, we're giving it numbers, etc. And, you know, what's more interesting, and if you look prognostically, I think if, you know, look at some of the wonderful prognostic research into, into musculoskeletal problems, it's nearly always the psychological stuff that, ten, you know, I don't want to reduce it, but it tends to be more prognostic than actually the, the, the more objective diagnosis side of things. Hmm. So if you look at a prognostic model rather than a diagnostic model, we're definitely seeing some of the human factors and the thoughts and the feelings and the behaviours maybe maintain many of these problems more than the actual pathology uh, side mm. of things. So mm. sometimes I think, you know, if we look at it from that sense, that humanism and understanding the person and, and how they behave and their thoughts and their feelings and their experiences do seem to have a profound influence on what happens. Mm. Um, so I still think that, you know, even 30, 40 years later, 40, 40 odd years later now, uh, we're still only really touching the very, very edges of what Engel was talking about. Yeah, yeah, it was quite ahead of his time, really, wasn't he? Um, so, okay, so it was kind of suggested or proposed, at least formally, in response to uh, his perceived uh, thoughts on the dehumanization tendency of the biomedical model and also the, the dualistic nature of the, yep. of the biomedical model and the reductionist nature yep. of the biomedical model. So if we just think about dualism for a moment, so... I guess I assume you're referring to Cartesian dualism here. Yep, as you mentioned a moment ago, separation of the mind and the body. What, is, what does that mean for a, for a normal physio? So probably maybe just equate that to pain. What's, maybe, what's a dualist interpretation of pain and why, why is that relevant for the biopsychosocial model? Yeah, because I think what it does is it separates this sensation from mm the person what I mean by that so I always have a crappy little saying that I use it, it's kind of it's not just the way it feels but the way it makes us feel if that makes sense so it's not just the sensation and I think we focus mostly on the sensation VAS mm -hmm. is about sensation if you think about modern pain science it mainly focuses on why the stimulus and the sensation don't always equate so hurt mm -hmm. and harm so why, you know, I can amp up, you know, the, the sensation at these multiple points with these multiple uh, mechanisms that occur within my body to do with all these kind of fancy mm. uh, chemicals, your, your endogenous opioids or your NMDA or MDMA, I can't remember. Um, right, they do different things, I've heard. So, you, you know, it, it's, and I think that's, for me, that's, that's the main factor, is that, you know, if we're going to talk about separating and even then, you know, the mind and the body, sometimes we talk about the brain, the brain and the mind the same. You know, we're really getting into the philosophical weeds here, but, you know, thoughts and feelings aren't just predicted by neurotransmitters, if that makes sense. You know, there's a secret source that we haven't quite worked out yet, I think. Mm. There. So for me, really, it's about not just the sensation, not just how much it hurts, but it's also, and maybe there's a term that people use called affect, which is starting to think about the emotion and these kind of the valence and these type of things. But even then, when people talk about affect, you know, they're talking about the unpleasantness. That would be a definition of affect, the unpleasantness of the sensation. But really, can we boil down affect into unpleasantness? That doesn't mm. work for me. Mm. You know, that's too simplistic 
because mm. we have lots of maybe different emotions or feelings that arise, not just according to the sensation, but my experience with the sensation. You know, whether that's with healthcare, whether that's with the media, whether that's with family. Um, and, and that's the big thing is it's not just how it feels. It's the way it makes me feel. And then moving on from that, and this is where we get into kind of inactive stuff, et cetera, what does it make me do? Um, mm. And then even beyond what does it make me do, what are the affordances and the constraints in my environment? In that, what am I allowed to do? <laughs> you know, or what what can I actually do? Yeah. So we, we keep, it's like a Russian doll, isn't it? We're just building and building and building and building. And I I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very well said. It's, it's kind of like... What's that quote? There's a quote from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson that says, as the, as the area of our knowledge expands, so does the perimeter of our ignorance. And it's kind yeah, of like yeah. that, isn't it? You, you study something, you learn something more, and is it more and more questions that are revealed? I love that. Yeah, yeah. Or just, yeah, more ignorance comes up. But it's, it's more if what next? If what? Mm. You know, we, mm. we, we're going through more logic gates, aren't we? Mm. We're opening up one and then we're coming up against another. And yeah, but you know, that I think that's a, exactly what we need to be in response to this is rather mm. than think, have we got it figured out? Is it solved? It's just a journey. And it's just one where you have to accept that you don't know very much, mm. but we're just going a little further each time, potentially. Yeah, 100%. And then, and then reductionism, and we, we kind of mentioned that that's fairly self-evident in terms of reducing complex things such as pain such as experience such as physiotherapy even down to its constituent components as low and, and as low and as low as you can go and yeah, in, a great a great well, example of that for me would be something like a questionnaire is that we are reducing someone's fear their individual you know, feelings in response to an action, such as a movement or whatever, can we reduce that into a questionnaire? You know, that, that for me would be a classic way that we've taken the, bio, uh, the biopsychosocial model and we've done exactly what we did before. And I describe yeah. that as looking at the, looking at the bio, biopsychosocial through a biomedical lens. Yeah, I've got a quote right here that says, the biopsychosocial theory starts by trying to avoid dualism and then in practice becomes dualistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess that kind of leads us that leads us onto here. I, I want to have a look at, or analyze, or investigate, or explore whatever word you want to use, Ben. Some of the the criticisms or the critical appraisals that have started to come in thick and fast, actually, over the last few years, uh, towards the biopsychosocial model, which I guess is a good thing, um, and it, it tends to happen as things become more and more popular and more and more entrenched. The biopsychosocial model seems to be mentioned in every single paper that's published these days and that's again that's a good thing but 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 there needs to be some analysis of 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 how it's actually used in practice or how it's interpreted and you've got some cool stuff to say here so i think anyway so the biopsychosocial model commonly and and i think peter stillwell and and, and Catherine Harmon said this commonly fragmented commonly trichotomized or even dichotomized right it's bio and then psychosocial yeah they're beautiful yeah and so is this, is this, so these are valid criticisms, right? But is that a problem of the conception? Is that a problem? Is that what Engel actually meant? Or is, our, is that our problem of interpretation? Which is it? Well, yeah, again, this forms the, uh, the cut and thrust of the paper that me and Peter have, uh, and Joe have written recently, 
is what are the interpretations? Now, I think there are two main interpretations here. One would be the causation model, where we are trying to define causative factors for this person's problem. Is it a bio problem? Is it a psycho problem? Or is it a psychosocial problem, as you pointed out? It often doesn't even get trichotomized. It's still, <laughs> you know, just dichotomized. And, and so it it's very, it's very much, if you pick up a paper about the biopsychosocial model, and if you read, you know, we know an introduction to a paper is saying, why do we need it? What is it all about? Mm -hmm. Now, how many times have you ever read a good synopsis of th that author's philosophy around the biopsychosocial model, right? What they usually do is reference another paper. Now, it will say the biopsychosocial model commonly used in practice, number four. Right. And often that's the Gatchel paper. So many people have cited the Gatchel paper. Right. 2007. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the title. So it's uh, the biopsychosocial approach to chronic pain. And, you know, that would for me fall into more of a causational model where we are looking at factors that have influenced this person's pain. Right. So what is driving their pain? What is causing their pain? And I think that that is quite a common uh, approach that, that's taken this causational model. Now, among, and, and that tends to be pain around pain, right? Where it gets a bit interesting is where you start to look at doctoring models, so MD models, where they take much more of this philosophy of care approach. And that would be another interpretation, which would be this humanistic interpretation. So we see these two major um, kind of interpretations that, 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 are, that are out there. But I still think if you want to write a paper about the biopsychosocial model, you actually, in your first paragraph, have to say what you believe it is. Where are you getting these influences from? What, what has, you know, what, what, what are we talking about here? Because you could be sitting here talking about the biopsychosocial model. I'm sitting here talking about the biopsychosocial model. We're using exactly the same terminology, mainly the word biopsychosocial, but we're talking about two different things. Uh, and I think that's fascinating because I see these type of discussions where people are using the same terminology, but that terminology is leading to two different interpretations of, of what's being discussed. Mm. And so I think we need to start to define it. But definitely, I think the two major things that we're talking about are this causational model. What is driving this person's pain? What can we identify that, that we can fix? You know, which I would say is a bit of a biomedical perspective. And then mm. there's this other side of it, which is about who is this person? What is their problem? How is it affecting their lives? And maybe how we're going to approach it. So I would say, actually, the interpretation tends to drive the criticism. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's let's linger for a moment on this, this notion of causation and use of the biopsychosocial model perhaps wrongly. And I, I think this is this is what we fall victim. This is the this is this is kind of our common mistake in physiotherapy. I'm speaking general here, but I myself routinely make this mistake. Somebody comes in, I'm trying to be well-rounded, I'm trying to be holistic. And in my mind, I think in categories. So I'm kind of like, okay, like what's happening biologically here? When I say biologically, any everything could be biologically right. But I'm thinking structurally, I'm thinking cellular, I'm thinking molecular, I'm thinking in a reductionist manner and then i'm like what's happening here perhaps in their thoughts feelings and their beliefs right and then i'm thinking yeah. about what are the social determinants of health what's this person's person's health literacy literacy what's their story what's their background story there and and then i'm thinking all of these things there's a lot happening ben and then we're meant to we're meant to what we're meant to ask a couple of questions there how's your mood how are you feeling today okay cool i asked about that check that box 
where did you grow up? Okay, check that box. Now let's go and do some exercise. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's very hard to get away from this reductionist yeah. and fragmented interpretation of it, isn't it? Yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's about, again, it, we're talking about a process there, aren't you? You're talking mm. about your process, your internal process of dealing with a, a patient. And part of that is driven by your education, your experiences, and the, the framework that all of us had to go through to get to the point we're at. Mm. You know, that, was, that, that, was, that formed the backbone of your training, didn't it? So it mm. guy, it's almost an inbuilt way of working, an autonomic response, maybe in some senses. So, you know, I, I mean, I haven't got an answer for you because no mm. one else has got one either. So, and that makes mm. me feel quite good. Um, you know, so certainly that's, I think, where it has to fall into a philosophy sometimes rather than, you know, how do we do it in a different way? I don't know how we should do it in a different way, mm. but I do think that, uh, you know, behind the process, there should be a philosophy. Mm. that guides you know should your process change i don't know you have a framework to work in you have a clinic structure you have a medical structure you have a legal structure these are other social constraints that are working on you but underlying all of that what is your philosophy of care and that's why i probably gravitate towards that as well because mm. i think we're trying to focus on the nuts and the bolts sometimes without focusing on the actual bigger picture of how do i make this constrained process a better experience for the user yeah focusing on the finger instead of looking at the moon it's um it's that's that's a really good point so you so i like the second iteration or perhaps probably the wrong word in terms of the humanistic or the the, the medical doctor interpretation um where it's a philosophy of care you're taking into account that human or you're trying to step into that individual's shoes for a moment in time and try and figure out what their experience yeah. is and trying to facilitate and coach and guide and get that person back to life. That's do you think that would be a a more effective use of the of the biopsychosocial model? Perhaps and when I'm speaking there, it's kind of sounding a bit more effective use. It's all scientific causation kind of <laughs> stuff. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard yeah, to get yeah, away yeah. from the vernacular, but yeah. is, is that a more well, help me out. You're you're talking about patient-centered care, aren't you? And that would be yeah. another iteration. And this again, mm. I can't remember that it was a Scottish guy in the, in the mid eighties who um who who started talking about Craig. I can't remember his name. It's too early for me, Jared. But but he started talking about patient-centered care. I think his seminal paper is eighty six, even though I can't remember what his bloody name is. You know, and that is an iteration, a cyclic process of another cycle of the biopsychosocial model. It's an offshoot. You know, that's what patient-centered care really is, isn't it? You know, that, that's the point. And, and another thing that we've tried to do in our paper that, you know, should see the light of day at some point soon is we've tried to actually say, how do we merge these things together? You know, how do we actually take this philosophy of care, this humanistic model, as we call it, or and this causational model and try and bring them together. And actually, mm. for me, I like the concept of a relationship-centered model. So it's not about person or patient. It's actually about two-person medicine. And two-person medicine, again, is a core principle of the, uh, the biopsychosocial model and patient-centered care. Mm. So, so this, this idea of we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist in a relationship in, in what we're doing in terms of helping people and then we exist within a, an embedded society and so how do we bring these things together 
I think is important because we still have to think about causation, pathology, the bio, you know, I hate that term. You know, we have to think about those things because they form part of what we're doing. But how do we integrate those into a, a wider sense of, of what we're trying to do? And again, it's all very bloody philosoph philosophical, isn't it? Um, mm. But we all need a little bit of philosophy about what we think is important, how we work. And if we never think about that, I think we just get caught in this trap of just doing the same tick box exercises. And that is exactly what Engel was talking about. Yeah, I know. It's, it's embarrassing, really. It, the, the, the thing I fear, Ben, though, is you do all this work. You, you, you publish something. It's, it's great. It's, it has great success. Then somebody tries to use it in a clinical trial versus something else. And, and it, again, it's, it's quantified, again, it's like, and it's this basic outcome measures of pain and disability or range of motion or whatever it is, these, these biological, these physical outcome measures that perhaps don't exactly capture the whole damn point of the thing in the first place. Which is exactly it, why I say it does it. That's precisely, exactly right. So, so where are we at? How, how do we reconcile being a science-informed profession and having an overarching framework that perhaps evades science is there's a paradox and I'm not sure. And it makes, it makes me, I, I have sleepless nights sometimes thinking about this because I'm, I'm becoming more and more, I'm becoming more and more aware of the, the restrictions and the restraints and the limitations of science when studying complex things. I think science is amazing and I'm such a quantitative guy um, in terms of my past, but it's, it's, I'm starting to see the shortcomings of it. Now, that doesn't mean I want to abolish and get rid of, of the science at yeah, all from our cool. profession, but how the hell do we cool. incorporate that and reconcile that with this mysterious kind of non-scientific or qualitative or experiential-based side of our profession? Yeah, Tough. so, you know, I, I think we have to view it as a different type of science, don't we? And, you know, that, mm. would, that would be the kind of premise. And again, even, you know, if we look at the randomized control trial and then you actually look at a patient outcome, you know, again, it's sometimes hard to, to, to put those two things together. You know, population level data versus individuals, you know, and people like Cause Health, Roger Kerry, those guys, you know, they, they, they've written some fantastic stuff. Um, in this in these these kind of spaces, you know, much much smarter than than I could ever even hope to be. It's you know, it's I suppose it's something, and I haven't got an answer for you, of course, because I'm not. Again, I don't think anyone else has, which makes me feel better. But at least you're considering the problem. So we do have to think about how does this outcome measure, this piece of data, fit into our wider philosophy. So the question I always ask, and and this generally doesn't get good uh, any responses. Let's take person-centered care, patient-centered care, relationship-centered care. I don't give a monkey's what we call it, right? And if we found out that it made no difference to disability, to pain, to healthcare utilization, is, is it something we shouldn't do? So get let's take it, these major, but if we take these major outcome measures that we measure efficacy by, right? So, you know, the big, the big ones. Um, and we get a big trial and it says, actually, being nice to people, making their experiences good, made no differences to these outcomes. It doesn't work. What now? Where next? Do you see what I mean? Is it now something? Well, it doesn't matter. Let's let's just forget it. 
Because when you when you listen to a patient with long term persisting pain who's had a terrible experience in healthcare, no one's ever been able to help them either in, in their in their how do they feel, not just how does it feel. You know, it is is that something that we don't worry about because it wouldn't have it wouldn't have changed the outcome measure anyway. You know, so so that's always something that says it to me. Is it how you know how do we measure? the efficacy of something what are we measuring does it relate to what we want it to achieve yeah exactly right and that's that's it's kind of topical because of that reassurance paper that just came out recently you by know, absolutely by Aidan Cashin yeah, yeah and yeah yeah absolutely you know, we we can we can improve we can make somebody feel reassured however outcomes are no better but you don't start reassuring people do it's just a fundamentally well, human thing you to know do. and i had a bit of a discussion about this the other day someone would say well our intention is never to say don't do it but mm. the way that people interpret research is it works or it doesn't work it's that's that yeah. dichotomous Nyman Fisher you know setting your alpha level if you come up one percential we disregard it we set the hypothesis you reach you know you reach the threshold and if it doesn't reach that threshold then it doesn't work let's let's toss it let's accept the null hypothesis and you know, is is that is that the right way to measure some of these things? Now, some people will say yes. Some people will say no. It's all above my head. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It's all right. So good, good to talk about it anyway. Um, okay, so <laughs> let's 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 say, for example, the biopsychosocial model in its current carnation iteration is, would probably be a iteration word then. <laughs> iteration is 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 incomplete yeah what alternatives do we have you're writing a paper now with peter stillwell peter stillwell is famous for his inactivism paper and now affordances paper so is is this a viable is this a superior alternative well i I, I, look again you know is superior again that comes back to their efficacy do you see what i'm saying but again it highlights the kind of we take one thing and then we have to find something that's superior or better or works. And the answer is, I have no idea. You know, I don't yeah. even know if my thoughts go to it's going to work better, mm. but it's mm. another interpretation. Yeah, um, is it a better, is, is it, does it account for more? Is it more explanatory? Does it offer more I possibilities? Feel more I feel yeah. it's a more complete explanation mm. when we look at what Engel was trying to get at. Mm. So, I actually think, you know, that that people have done wonderful work in this space. You know, some people highlighting things that it isn't, other people interpreting things that it is. And at some point, I think we may need to bring these things in together to form more of a complete interpretation that says, actually, maybe the best the best approach is to is to bring these things in, into harmony rather than say it's this or it's this or it's this. And so is it better? I don't know. Do I believe that it's more complete given the interpretations, given what Engel wrote? I think so. But Mm. that doesn't mean that it is because I'm obviously Mm. biased in this one. (laughs) Yeah. So perhaps the philosophy and the ideology or the theory of it is more complete. But does it change our clinical practice? Oh, God, blimey. Now there's the elephant in the room. (laughs) Yeah. Will Will it change me in the clinic tomorrow? First thing, is, if I adopt it in an activism approach, fine. But what does that mean? What it, you know, what is changing what you do tomorrow? Is that the way you handle a knee? 
Is it your philosophy? Do you, do you see what it's I'm saying? So I, me, yeah, the way I, I practice as a physiotherapist. Yeah, so for, for you, I would hope that you sit down in your chair and you say, how am I going to approach this encounter? That you are going to say, I realise there's another human there and that actually probably exerts quite a large influence on what happens um, and their experiences are important and I would like to walk a bit of a mile in their shoes or whatever, uh, you know, kind of little quote we can we can throw out there. Um, so how does it change your practice? Usually that tends to be how we approach a test or how we coach an exercise or how we diagnose a pathology. Maybe we need to see changing practice as how do I approach what I'm trying to do? What are the important things? What is my philosophy about the, the, the overarching process not just a, a technique or an exercise or a diagnostic tool, which generally is what is changing. You know, that what, what's it going to do for you tomorrow? Well, I've got this wicked exercise for lower back pain, or I saw this amazing new special test. Well, maybe it's actually the way that you approach how you do things and what is mm. important to you and what is important to the other person. Then mm. someone else may say that's a load of philosophical claptrap. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, so again, it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it obviously depends on the individual as well in terms of how they have been practicing. But it is interesting to think about if 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 the biopsychosocial model is enacted upon, to use an activism and biopsychosocial at the same time, is enacted upon as Engel intended, however he intended. And I think how what he intended is actually quite a bit obscure, as you mentioned a moment ago. It's a little bit open to interpretation. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No yeah. doubt. <laughs> and and perhaps that's the what he wanted to do, but maybe he thought he was just starting a thought and, and would, would let the his descendants improve upon it. If if we were practicing, Ben, in your opinion, and this is just your opinion here, yeah, yeah. In in a in what you perceive to be a really good uh interpretation and application of the biopsychosocial model. Is that an appropriate way or is that a way that you would recommend uh, many people who are physiotherapists to try and practice? And, 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 and sort of, is that a sufficient philosophy to underpin their clinical practice? Or do you think it is incomplete to the point of it needs to be improved upon like immediately? Like right now. Like right um, now, so like yesterday. Right now. So look, I, I personally believe, and again, this is maybe going to come across as a bit of a new age hippie, pot smoking kind of thought process you know and that's generally what i try to do on a daily basis is be a new age hippie mm. you know i i believe actually we don't spend i think your first week in therapy school whether you're a physio chiro osteo whatever should be thinking about who you want to be as a therapist right who are you what underpins you what are your values what do you hold dear you know what what is your way of approaching the world so our personal philosophy. And I also believe we should look at the philosophy of evidence-based medicine in the first mm. couple of weeks, because that's going to say, actually, what is EBM, this thing, or EBP? What is this thing that's guiding us? You know, how do we mm. reconcile population data and individual data, et cetera? And I don't think we, you know, and this obviously changes along the way. So, but I don't think we give enough thought to who we are, how we want to practice, what underpins what we're trying to do. Often it's about this is the way that you do it. This fits yeah. in. And I think so. 
I don't think that we should take Engel's philosophy. I think we should listen to Engel and integrate it into our philosophy. And I think everyone should take five minutes to say, mm. why do I do what I do? Who am I? What am I doing here? You know, what, mm. what are my values? And, and so I think that that really is, you know, that for me would improve a lot of different things. Is think, and again, I suppose it's like epistemology, isn't it, in a way? You know, what is driving, guiding and defining how we're thinking about these things in that case mm. knowledge in mm. this case you know you know practice but what underpins what we're doing so again it might be some people are driven by other types of philosophy stoicism or, or whatever else i don't know mm. but i i certainly believe that we we don't take enough time to to think about you know what what we're trying to do and, and how we do it and, and i think that maybe taking a moment to do that would probably have an influence on how you do things and and and, and how you're guided through mm. this process. Because I think sometimes it's autonomic, isn't it? It's about just ticking the boxes, writing down the VAS, doing this, and then and then and then out the door. So mm. you know, we probably need a bit of a paradigm change in in this sense. In that we should probably we should probably force people to be a little bit more introspective mm. about the way that that, that they work. In, in relation to other people. That that would be my thought. I love it, mate. I love paradigm. We're bringing up Thomas Kuhn. We can't get any more philosophy than this. But I do, I do, I do love what you said there. You're so right. At university, we're taught there's one objective reality. Yeah. Right. And then it's your Nate, it's your job as a detective in health to go and find that objective reality that is causing that person's pain. And then you intervene and you solve it and the way you intervene is actually going to lead to a specific outcome for example if something's tight you loosen if something's weak you strengthen etc 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 it's this very this positivist type of interpretation of science isn't it and yeah just a basic six week perhaps module start on the philosophy of science or the philosophy of evidence-based medicine and just introducing all these topics realism on ontology uh epistemology the Kuhn's interpretation of science and Popper's interpretation of science and all of these things, it'd be a fabulous place to start, wouldn't it? Because then you could go on and you could actually critically appraise the things that you learn. Because I don't think we should stop learning about special tests and things. It's kind of, it's important yeah. to know how to do things and, and turn the arm this way and that way and screen range of motion, et cetera, et cetera. But it'd be nice, it'd be nice to do it from a philosophically enriched uh, background. Yeah, and then you have all these students asking all these questions and questioning you, and <laughs> so I can see yeah, practically sure. why. <laughs> yeah. So you form thirty people in a class who are all philosophically woke, and that must be a nightmare for a six weeks. So, just... yes. <laughs> so look, but you know, one of the things that's always been said to me is, "Oh, you're just going to confuse them." Um, yeah. You know, you're going to there isn't enough time or you're going to confuse the students or, or whatever. Mm. So I don't know whether that's a viable way of. And again, do you come up against a system? So we have the system of education and that is its own social constraint, isn't it? It's, you know, it's within within how we do things. But personally, mm. I believe that would make a, mm. a, 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 a big change. I'm sure, mm. you know, I'm a that pot smoking hippie part of me, the utopian, whatever, you know, people are out there going, Ben, that's ridiculous. Um, but I do think that that may change from within how people start to approach the, 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 the consumer experience.
Well, as you said at the start, philosophy is just thinking, mate. And if we're not if we're not going to encourage thinking, then where are we as a profession? So I, I think it's it, what harm can come of it apart from a little bit of a friction in the lecture room for the first couple of years, perhaps. Yeah. It's got to do good for the profession in the long term. <laughs> all right, Ben, uh, I could talk to you all day, mate, but I, I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. What book are you reading right now? And be honest. And what TV show are you watching with the with the missus right now as well? So I just uh, was, I, I'm reading Exercised by Daniel Lieberman. Mm, cool. How's that? So, so, so I got that. And actually my Kindle broke. So I bought it as an actual book. Mm. So, so I have that. So in the UK, it was really sunny up until about a week ago. Now it's just rained for the last week because obviously that's a British summer. So I love sitting in the garden, in the sunshine, reading my book. So I haven't done a lot of a lot of reading in terms of the last week, but Exercised is the book that I've got about 100 pages through. Um, and it, it's an interesting read. I'm not sure I always agree with everything Liebenman has to say. Um, or I, I don't always know if I like even the way that he says it, but it's definitely uh, an interesting <laughs> Uh, an interesting book. Uh, the other question was about a TV series, right? Yeah, you're watching anything on TV? What have I been watching? So me and my wife always have something on the go. So we just finished watching something called Mayor of Easttown, which was a HBO American thing. It. Yeah. Yeah. How is it? With, um, with, with oh, I've forgotten her name, the English actress, Kate Winslet, mm. uh, which is like a detective thing. Someone dies, they have to work out Love who it. did it. Love it. Seven parter. You know, easy watching. So we've been watching. And obviously we are watching the football because obviously it's the big European championships a year late. England are playing Germany tomorrow night. So that's going to be, you know, huge. yeah. So it's a bit spicy. It's a bit fruity. Uh, mm. I think we're up to the, and Wimbledon starts this week. Yeah. I yeah, do like Wim- a bit of tennis, I must say. Yeah, Wimbledon is, because that wasn't on last year either, Ben. So everyone must be uh, absolutely, absolutely looking forward to that. All right. Brilliant, mate. Raining, and, uh, so let's, where can people find you, Ben? Are you what's your socials of choice? Well, I'm very shy and retiring, uh, and it's very difficult to find me. I'll have you know. <laughs> no, no, look, look, I'm a right mouthy, you know, trumped up little boy. So, <laughs> so you can generally tend to. I, I, I'm quite, you know, prevalent talking crap on all the social media channels. Just under yeah. under core kinetic, which is just people ask me what does core kinetic mean. Well, it was just core Mac and movement. So core as in Mac and then kinetic as in moving. So, so that's that. <laughs> uh, but really quite simple stuff. Good. All right. And, and I absolutely can recommend to, to everyone to uh, go follow Ben, even if, even if you don't always like what he says, I think you'll be better <laughs> for it because it's about, and, and what you do really well, I think Ben is, is you just challenge. And I think you do it from a good place. And I think it's, it's it's never personal. It's always about the subject never. matter, and I think that's super yeah. important um, because and and what I like is is you can kind of do it to yourself as well, and and that's that's really important. So so keep doing you. I really appreciate what you're doing, and thanks for coming on and having a chat. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's a real real pleasure. All good. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Ben Cormack. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people.
I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.